The following Knowledge at Warden podcast is brought to you by Vanguard, offering investments designed to help individuals and institutions reach their financial goals. Visit Vanguard.com. Additional support for this podcast comes from Wharton Executive Education. For more information on Wharton's program, Full Spectrum Innovation Driving Organic Growth, please visit http colon slash slash executiveeducation.wharton.upenn.edu. These days, almost every company worth its balance sheet insists that it invests in innovation. But does it make or lose money on these investments? That is a tougher question, and one that James Andrew and Harold Serkin tackle in their new book titled Payback, Reaping the Rewards of Innovation. According to the authors, who are senior vice presidents and directors of the Boston Consulting Group, a new idea is just an invention, and not a true innovation, unless it generates financial returns. Thousands of good ideas exist within every organization, even those that don't think of themselves as innovative, they write. The real problem these companies have is how to turn their ideas into cash. That is where Payback hopes to help. Andrew and Serkin believe that in order to profit from their innovations, companies need to develop a process to collect, screen, and nurture new ideas and commercialize and realize them in a way that achieves payback. They explain concepts such as the cash curve, which lets firms track and manage the innovation process, and the cash trap, which refers to supposedly innovative products that perpetually hemorrhage cash. In an interview with Knowledge at Wharton, Serkin discussed these and other challenges companies face as they seek to innovate and hopefully make a few bucks along the way. Uh, Hal, thanks very much for being with us today. It's great to be here, Michael. Uh, well, this is a very interesting book uh, on, uh, on on innovation. Uh, and I wonder if we could start by talking a little bit about uh, why is it so hard for companies to get a return on their innovation? It's very hard because most companies think about the idea, the invention, as opposed to the innovation. And by innovation, we mean an idea that is driven to the profitability uh, of, uh, of return on investment. And so most companies focus on invention, and it's, they focus on the ideas. And so they'll spend a lot of effort looking at ideas, sorting through ideas, trying to generate ideas. But very little of the process that they do, they go through, is focused on then how do I turn those ideas into something that delivers payback. So they spend little time screening those ideas for the ones that would be commercially viable or technically feasible, and they move forward with them. They spend little time focusing on how they're going to develop them, and they spend very, very little time thinking about how they're going to manage them over the life cycle. What they don't have is the fundamental discipline in operating the entire process. So they get enamored with the ideas, the invention, but they don't get enamored with the process to make it work, and therefore they don't focus on innovation and by not focusing on the innovation, they don't achieve payback. So it's not that they lack imagination, or it's not that they lack resources. It's mainly a, an understanding of the process to move it from one step to the next? Exactly. We think most companies are putting in at least twice as much of what they need to spend and getting about half the value of what they should be achieving because the focus is in the wrong place. It's very rare that we go into companies and find that there aren't good ideas. In fact, most companies, when we do some research, we find out they have five or ten times as many good ideas as they could possibly move forward. The problem is they're often trying to move all those ideas forward at the same time. Uh, one of the things that you know, I found very interesting in, the, uh, in, in your book is, is the part where you talk about how many, many companies have products that actually lose money uh, and, and they become what you call cash traps. Uh, how, how exactly does that work and if, how do you identify a cash trap? 
Well, cash traps are obvious when you see them, although in most companies it's hard to find them right away. Uh, a cash trap is a, is a product that just fundamentally does, has not, and will never make money. It's either because it's viewed as a core product in the operation uh, of a company or core product line in an operation, and no one does the accounting that basically would show from on a cash basis that the, these products lose money. Identifying them is pretty simple. You can often see them because they tend to not be growing very fast. They tend to be taking a lot of resources and continuing to demand even more and more resources. And then you can start to look at those and say, are they really worth the investment? And we find in many companies there are riddled with cash traps. And by just removing those cash traps, you can improve the productivity of innovation. Could you give an example of a, of a cash trap? Uh, uh, I, I know there's one that you cited in the book was the Concorde, for example. Could you well, the Concord, talk us yeah. through that, uh, that example a little bit? The, the Concorde was the ultimate cash trap. And, of course, it wasn't, invented, it wasn't an invention from a company. It was a, a joint venture between the, the British and French governments. So it's a different situation than many companies may have. But Concorde is a, was a great example. Uh, it, was a, it was meant to develop technology, uh, and it was the first supersonic transport uh, that existed. The U.S. Uh, looked at it. I think Boeing had a model of a supersonic transport, but did the math and realized they could not sell enough planes at enough price to be able to make money. The Anglo-French joint venture, <clears throat> funded by a lot of government money, uh, decided that it would move forward with this idea in many ways uh, for the prestige of the countries and in other ways for the development of technology to build a very good aerospace business. And there were some benefits that came from it. But if you looked at the economics of Concorde, um, they only sold, I believe, 13 or 14 planes. Uh, they spent billions on development. Uh, and their largest customer uh, were, of course, only Air France and British Airways. And the sale of Concorde to British Airways was not at a price that you would expect for an airplane, but it was one English pound, which is a most amazing thing because they had to sell the airplanes. And British Airways understood that they had to sell the airplanes and would refuse to pay anything more than one pound per plane. So it's a tremendous example of a cash trap. Cash traps show up in many companies in other ways as well. Uh, you can find them in you know, industrial goods companies. Uh, you can find them in consumer goods companies where someone is a enamored with a particular product or technology, uh, often at a very senior level, and people feel that they can't touch that product. And because they can't touch it, the investment continues, and you get a cash trap. A couple of weeks ago, we had Steve Ballmer, CEO of Microsoft, here speaking to students. He took exception with one of the questions from the students suggesting that Microsoft is not an innovative company, mainly because they often go into markets where there's already uh, a, a competency established, and then they try and blow the people out of the water. According to your definition of innovation, then, is Microsoft innovative? Well, in our book, we say they are probably the most innovative company uh, because we may define innovation differently than others do, and we think that definition is very important. We think without getting payback, ideas are ideas, but they're not very valuable, that businesses are in business like Microsoft to make money. That is their mission. They have, made, have other social goals to achieve as well, but that's one of the things they have to do. And because of that, you have to have payback. And so Microsoft is one of the most innovative companies because it is very good, not just at identifying ideas, but at driving them into the marketplace and driving them successfully to earn a return. And that makes Microsoft, in our, by our definition, the most innovative company. Uh, there's, there's many companies. I mean, you think about P&G as another great example of an innovative company. Um, you think about uh, uh, BMW as a great example of an innovative company. They all do it in very different ways, but they are very, very focused 
on not just the idea, but how you drive that idea to reality and a reality that earns a return, not just a reality that produces a product. I don't mean to keep returning to the idea of cash traps, but you know, one of the things, again, that I found quite interesting was even if an innovation doesn't quite make money, uh, there may be some other intangible benefits that a company uh, might derive from that product or service, which helps other parts of the company to make money and establish payback. Could you explain a little bit how does that process sure, well, let's work? Sure, let's come back. examples? Let's go back to Concord, because I think that's an example where there were some benefits, clearly on a direct cash basis. Concord didn't make any money, particularly if you sold an airplane for one pound. Uh, but there were a lot of indirect benefits. So it did, as was decided by the Anglo-French joint venture, to be able to build technology base for aerospace in Europe. Out of that eventually grew Airbus and the whole Airbus uh, fleet of airplanes that came from that. So that's an indirect benefit. It built a set of capabilities. We think there's uh, several different kinds of indirect benefits that you can have. Uh, one being knowledge, so it's a technical knowledge. One being brand, uh, and you may decide to spend money and create a cash trap to build a brand. Of course, when you do that, there's a point in time you've built the brand, you need to turn the cash trap off, and that's where people make the mistake. Um, you may think about it as an ecosystem. So uh, a lot of what Apple does with the iPod is built an ecosystem around it for all the products that go around it that helps Apple make more money in that area, and build an ecosystem. And the last one is you may do it for organizational vitality. So some companies have invested in such examples. Toyota invests in racing cars. They're not going to make money in racing cars, but it's part of the organizational vitality of Toyota. It's something to rally around, and of course it also gives them more knowledge because you put those cars under a lot more stress. So there are many reasons why you would have businesses that don't earn cash uh, or don't earn payback. But what you have to keep coming back to is making sure that those things are valuable because those indirect benefits have got to eventually yield payback. Uh, you've, you've pointed out that uh, many companies look for organic growth these days, um, mainly through innovation as opposed to, say, mergers and acquisitions. But isn't M&A coming back with a vengeance? Well, it's a, it's a balanced question. Uh, it's not to say that you would do one or the other. It's to say that you'd actually like to have profitable M&A, accretive M&A, and you'd also like to have even more accretive growth. You'd want to do both at the same time because the stock market re rewards growth of any kind that is, uh, in, in, achieves a high return. Uh, organic growth through innovation, if you do it right and you manage your process right, will achieve a high return. So you do both. We're not saying you can't do M&A. We're not saying M&A is a bad thing at all. But we are saying most companies find, have taken some of the easy routes through M&A and they're missing opportunities through innovation. How does a company like BCG innovate? Oh, that's a, that's a long process for us, <laughs> and it's something we focus on tremendously. Uh, we have the ability to pull people aside in our organization when good ideas come up and ask them to work on them. We have a screening process in place to be able to think through what are the good ideas and which ones we're going to invest in to make sure we don't create a lot of cash traps. We take prudent risk, and we think about the risks of each investment. So we have small investments and large investments, risky investments and low-risk investments in our portfolio. And then we have a process to push each idea forward so that we can turn into something that our clients can use to be able to help them improve the payback in their businesses. 
There's also a very interesting section in your book about how companies organize, what models companies use for innovation. Uh, for example, some companies are integrators while others uh, orchestrate innovation. Could you give us some examples of those, the models of innovation and how they can work for different companies? Sure. Well, an integrator tries to do most of everything on their own. So a great example of that is Seagate, the disk drive manufacturer. And they have specifically chose to be an integrator. They had considered to be an orchestrator, which is someone who uh, works with a lot of outside parties. But they realized the different pieces of the disk that need to be put together need to work in tandem in an incredibly important way. And if they were going to put a lot of those on the outside, they could never get the coordination to work. So they made a decision that it would actually be faster to be able to produce a quality product to integrate. Other companies have made an orchestrator decision when they recognize that they can't do everything internally, and it's actually faster, lower cost, lower risk to take it outside. So what you watch over time, back to the airplane business, Boeing as a company, doing more and more orchestration, having its suppliers provide more of the value-added content, it being focused on engineering and it being focused on the, the manufacturer of the actual plane itself, but outsourcing systems, and it becomes more and more an orchestrator. Perhaps the ultimate orchestrator are people in the apparel business who often have a brand, outsource the design, and outsource just about everything else in terms of manufacturing, including the supply chain, and are responsible just for bringing it to market. Is orchestration the same as outsourcing, or is there a difference? Well, no. Outsourcing can be a piece of it. Orchestration is when you are putting a lot of the value added on the outside. So if you take low-value operations and you give them to somebody else, you can still be an integrator. Uh, when you're an orchestrator, you are taking a lot of the value and putting it outside, recognizing that you will get benefits from it. The benefits could be reduced risk because you're not taking all of it on yourself, faster time to market because they can do a lot of it faster, and other factors that are very important in terms of those decisions. Is the, the innovation process, or um, maybe a better way to put it, the idea of innovation different in a country like China or India? It, sorry, is it different in those countries? What? How is it viewed in those countries, and how does how is the process? I would imagine somewhat more challenging uh, in terms of companies being able to innovate given um, the economic conditions, the restrictions, that kind of thing. Well, I think it's it's different everywhere, and it may be more different by company or by company philosophy than it would be by country. Um, you know, there are many things that make innovation more difficult. So, companies that create an environment where risk taking is not in any way allowed, or risk-taking gets you no rewards, you only get punished for taking risk, that's one, a real problem. So I'm not sure you would say it's different by country, but you would say it would be different by some cultural characteristics. But in China, for instance, would, would they be considered a country of risk-takers, or they, there's just so much government regulation and, and government kind of watchfulness that it's very hard to be a risk-taker there? Well, I think there are companies in China that take risks. I don't, I don't think there's something about that environment that is problematic. I think, I think it's fundamentally driven by the nature of the people who are responsible for whatever the organization is to be able to, to drive it. So there are a lot of risk-takers in China. They've made many, many investments. Uh, as individual organizations. So I, I don't think there's a barrier to innovation in China. If uh, a company CEO were to come f uh, to you uh, for some advice on how to get started on, on getting some payback on their uh, ideas so that they could turn them into innovations uh, that uh, in which the investment pays off, what advice would you give them? Well, the first thing I would say is let's draw a cash curve. Let's take a look at the profile of several of your 
ideas that you tried to take to innovation, and let's see what happened. Let's see where you invest and how you invested. And let's take a look at the ones that you feel didn't work so well and say, could they have worked well if you had done it differently? Because again, we think the big problem isn't often with the idea, although there are many ideas that are not the right ones to take forward, but it's how you take the idea forward. And for many ideas that have failed and never became innovations, when you go back and you take a look at what happened, they could have been had you chosen to do things differently. And so we ask people to go back and look at the cash curve and say, what would it have been? What was it? And what could it have been if you had done it differently? And that's often a good place to start. The other place we ask people to start is to take a look at the portfolio of what they're doing and say, do you, can you really move all these ideas forward? Do you really have the resources? Are you underfunding some and should you not be funding others? And oftentimes we help them sort that portfolio down to be a portfolio of about a third to half the size, but the right projects being funded with a higher probability of getting them out the other side in a reasonable period of time with a reasonable amount of costs, which give them a good chance at re- becoming innovations. How about famous innovators in the U.S. that you can name? Famous innovators as companies or as individuals? Individuals. Well, the one, that, the one that gets named the most, of course, is Thomas Edison as an innovator. And he was both an innovator and not an innovator in many ways. Some of his ideas he got commercial value from, but most of his ideas he got very little commercial value from. Uh, often he had to sell the ideas too early in order to pay for his inventions. And so he was an interesting character in that way because he was both an inventor and had some innovations. Others might be better at innovations with fewer inventions, but he was too curious and he had too many ideas. And like many companies, his portfolio was such that he could move them all forward. Uh, Hal, thank you very much for speaking with us. You're welcome. Thank you very much, Nicole. For more information, please visit our website at knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.